Greetings, and thanks for tuning in the Main Question Podcast from UMaine. I'm your host, Ron Luznet. In this episode, we take a look at the role of research in our lives and in the world of academics from a big picture perspective. The word research has many connotations and meanings depending on its use. It covers everything from basic research, which uncovers new facts or knowledge. It can be applied research, which takes those new facts and puts them to use to solve an issue or improve a situation, even create a new tool or device. For many in the academic world, it is the lifeblood and essence of what a faculty member does, how they advance their career. Sometimes research takes place and uncovers new knowledge or makes advances that never really resonate beyond the world of academe. It might never be shared beyond a small group of peers. At the University of Maine, the Senator George J. Mitchell Center for Sustainability Solutions is building a new model for doing research that reaches beyond the ivory tower and makes a real difference. The complex problems in our world today often require complex solutions that attack an issue from several angles. It's an excellent example of that old saying that the whole is greater than the sum of its parts. These issues can't be solved by one person studying one subject with one approach, and we'll hear several examples of how that philosophy has made a difference in this episode. Beyond that interdisciplinary approach, the Mitchell Center and many other teams of researchers at UMaine have been working hard to take those research findings and apply them to solve problems in our communities, the environment, wherever an issue needs to be addressed. They begin their research by talking to the people affected and making them part of the process. That often leads to better outcomes and buy-in from everyone involved. David Hart, the director of the Mitchell Center and a professor in the School of Biology and Ecology, along with Linda Silka, a senior fellow at the Mitchell Center, tackled this issue in a recent article entitled Rebuilding the Ivory Tower, a bottom-up experiment in aligning research with societal needs, which appeared in the publication Issues in Science and Technology. We talked about these trends and the challenges they present for researchers at every stage of their career, but also about the opportunity to make a significant impact. Thank you both for taking the time to talk to us. Uh, it sounds like some, some very compelling research that you've been involved in, and we appreciate your sharing your thoughts with us. Glad to do it. You talk about the many reasons that folks in academia do research that may have an interest in a topic, they like to discover new things, they want to advance their careers, a lot of other reasons. Uh, where does improving a situation or the world at large come into play in that mix, do you think? Uh, you know, that's such a good question because it really, I think, gets at the, the heart of, of what we're doing. And what's really interesting, I've found, I've worked in a lot of, you know, different places, but, but what's really interesting about the people working at the Mitchell Center or in with the Mitchell Center is improving the world is key to what they're doing. They're, the research they go into, the ways they're thinking about things. There are anthropologists that are at the university that are really thinking about things. People who are economists, um, people who are who uh, study frogs, they're saying, we gotta think about this research in ways that put, put it all together. David, your thoughts? I think that there are lots of reasons that people want to become academics, and they're often just incredibly passionate about the thing that they study, and they love being around students and training the next generation. But I think we've found that this desire to do all of those things and 
make the world better get with, with what their skills and expertise are is just a really strong passion. It's not true everywhere, but boy, is there a big collection of people at the University of Maine, and the Mitchell Center is one of those places where they like to come together. And a lot of those projects probably, check, like you said, check all of those boxes at the same time. Absolutely. Yeah, we've definitely found that. So the Mitchell Center does so much. Is it sometimes difficult to, to boil down what the Mitchell Center for Sustainability Solutions does in a simple way, a sort of a napkin, cocktail napkin or elevator pitch? And is that maybe part of the challenge that it's hard for people to grasp some of these issues you're tackling without a lot of context and an explanation? So kind of two answers to that, I think. One is you're right, everything's a little more complicated maybe than we would like. But we actually have a vision statement that says we're all about linking scientific knowledge with societal action to create a better world, to uh, address economic, environmental, and social challenges all wrapped together. So I can do that going just one floor up on an elevator. Um, But if you give me 100 floors to go to the top of a skyscraper in New York, I'll, I'll be glad to tell you more about what that is. And one other example of, of the work is that uh, sometimes we sort of do the elevator uh, speech when we're in a boat. So, for example, mm. as a part of the Sustainability Solutions Initiative, people were working on the Saco River estuary and looking at all the contaminants that were getting into the water and the way they were affecting the lobsters and what was happening to the people who own land along the river. So we did this event that was called, we're all in the same boat. We went out (laughs) for a day along the Sasako River and talked together about what are the issues and what do we need to do and how do we do it. I'd be interested to hear the elevator pitch. So we just hit the button and someone turns to you and says, well, what do you do? How do you answer them? We're trying to solve real-world problems that have multiple moving parts, so we really want to take the kind of knowledge that exists in a university, combine it with real-world knowledge and know-how, and get to work on those problems. I think we've only gone half a floor up with that one, but how about for you, Linda? What, what, What would your elevator pitch be? The pitch would be actually not a pitch. It would be who's ever in the elevator with me, I'd say, (laughs) what's on your mind right now? (laughs) And then what I try and do is say, well, we're doing some things that are interesting about that. Applying the knowledge to to solve a problem. Yeah. Can you uh, both maybe give us some examples of long-term multi-level problems that have benefited by a sort of a more thought-out, measured, interdisciplinary approach? Would the results have been as good without this kind of thought and this kind of method? So, Ron, let me build off of um, the question you had before about the pitch, and I think Linda's answer was really great. A lot of the time, the way we do our work is to begin in those conversations that she gave the example. Here's one. We had faculty uh, who were connected with the Mitchell Center who uh, um, are people like Darren Ranko in the Department of Anthropology, but also in the Mitchell Center and also a registered member of the Penobscot Nation, who said, I'm pretty sure that there's some issues that are going on for the Penobscot Nation about basket making, and they're worried about scarce uh, brown ash, the tree that they get some of the basket making materials from. They're worried about that. Uh, They're thinking it might be harder to find. And he went out to those communities, and of course they're also part of his family, if you will. Everybody has basket makers in in their families. And when he did this, 
he said, I, I, I've heard you talk about this being a problem. And one of the interesting things they said is, well, yeah, that is a concern, but an even more urgent concern, this was about 10 years ago, is there's this invasive forest pest called the emerald ash borer that's supposedly going to arrive in Maine soon. And in the Midwest where it started, it came from China, it's wiped out ash trees. And so literally an existential threat to basket making, which is a, it's a social issue, it's an economic issue, it's part of their creation story. Well, he had no idea what an emerald ash borer was or what it would take. I think he thought about this very differently, but once he started that conversation that Linda described in the elevator, like what's on your mind, a whole different approach to the work developed that brought together the tribes, state government, federal government, NGOs, the forest products industry. Darren knew nothing about insects, and he still doesn't know a lot about them because he's not an entomologist. But boy, has he rolled up his sleeves together and brought all those other people to the table. And you can't solve that problem. In fact, sadly, with the emerald ash borer, the, the experts in the federal government have said, there is no way to eradicate this insect. We're going to have to live with it. But what does that look like for tribes? So the project has gone in so many other directions, sharing basket-making materials across the state, uh, across multiple states. There's a partnership all the way out to Michigan on this. What other kind of materials could be used? Uh, whether we can uh, develop uh, collections of seeds where we might find genetically resistant varieties of brown ash that won't be as susceptible to the ash borer. None of that stuff could have happened had there not been those early conversations and kind of a sense of how to bring it all together. And another, um, just sort of building on that, another um, example of a long-term difficult uh, problem that you need to have a lot of different people involved is, is really food, food waste, food insecurity. And um, Maine is just key in terms of looking at these things. I like something like 30 or 40% of our waste is food waste, and we have a very high rate of food insecurity. So we need to come together and work on that, and that's exactly what we've done where we have uh, economists working together, food people, um, anthropologists, working with partners to say, these problems are connected, we gotta work together on them. And two examples that dominate the headlines certainly these days are of course COVID-19 and climate change. It's like you're peeling back an onion. There's so many layers. You get to the bottom and then there's these devastating worldwide issues that are at the core of a lot of these things. They're multi-levels that you got to go through. Actually, Ron, um, the food insecurity issues and food waste issues that Linda just described have been made more difficult by the pandemic. And in fact, one of the big challenges there, it's literally a gap between the supply and, and, and the demand. So you have food producers that can no longer uh, deliver their food to restaurants and are wondering what to do with their food. And you have pantries that are trying to figure out where to get food from in the right size and at the right times. And there are faculty that are part of the Mitchell Center that are right in the middle of that with both the ones who have too much and the ones that have too little going straight to people like Suzanne Lee, who's an executive in residence in the main business school, being the go-to expert because of the network she built, which is a network of diverse expertise and commitment. And the students that are involved are amazing. Just going back to that food issue, and you hear 
these horror stories of uh, meat producers or commercial farmers having to plow under their crops or get rid of the livestock that they're working with. It's so devastating to think of the, how great the need is and at the worst time, this is what's happening. You're absolutely right, Ron. And, and last Thursday, Linda and I had the pleasure of listening to those three students talk in one of the most compelling ways I've ever heard. These are undergraduates, by the way, from economics, from engineering, and uh, one was pre-med. They were basically gave a list in six areas of how to close that gap to deal with food insecurity and food waste. Uh, Those recommendations are going out to the real world actors in, in the food producers, the food pantries, with lots of collaboration along the way. This is a perfect example of what it's gonna take I mean, there's all that expertise in the university, but you got to connect the dots. How do you engage and work with stakeholders? Are there times when the interests of the parties involved clash? So the quick answer is, of course, because we're people, right? So, of course, people don't always see eye to eye, and you can view that as the glass being half full or half empty. I happen to think people looking at problems from a lot of different angles is a strength, but it often means that they're going to look at things in ways that don't always align perfectly, especially at the outset. So uh, just one quick example, we have a wonderful project led by uh, Bridie McGreevy in the Department of Communication and Journalism with many other faculty like Sean Smith over in uh, the School of Earth and Climate Sciences, two very different fields, and they uh, are working along the coast where we have some problems having to do with coastal pollution. Uh, when, rain, when it rains and bacterial pathogens wash off the land into the water, clam flats can get closed for weeks. Uh, you can't harvest clams, can't sell them, and you know that's a livelihood. That really matters to people. And so, well, the ones that make the decisions about closing, like the Department of Marine Resources, they're not necessarily going to look at things in exactly the same way as a clammer would, whose livelihood depends on being out there on the flats. Not everybody even thinks that the university's role is always looking at things the right way. I I know of a story, Linda and I just wrote about this in our paper that came out recently called Rebuilding the Ivory Tower, and in that story there were communities that said, you guys aren't looking at the right places where the problems really are most serious. You need to move to other places. Now, we got a grant from the National Science Foundation and picked the spots that we thought were the right ones. But when we started hearing from the communities, they were actually a little bit frustrated that we hadn't picked the places they cared about. Uh, Sean and Bridie drove probably more than three hours round trip on a weekend to go meet with those folks and say, what, what are you telling, what, what, what is it that we could do differently that would be more helpful? They ended up redesigning their whole thing. And so it went from pretty big frustration to what's now probably close to a 10 year relationship. And I've been out on the flats with those clamors who've said this project is one of the best things that's happened to them in the last 10 years. They call the people that are involved in that project, they talk about working the tide, that you need to set up at the meetings at a time when it's high tide because then you're not going to interfere with people's work. And so just understanding the partner and figuring out where's the common ground, it's it's just really interesting. You have to uh think about the, the rhythms that work for the people that are involved, really, is what it comes down to. So is it challenging to get researchers uh, to work out of their comfort zone? You talk about these interdisciplinary projects, and 
somebody that's a marine biologist is not necessarily adept in the field of communications and journalism. You've talked about a few instances where fisheries scientists or engineers were basically skeptical about working with social scientists. What, what uh, helped them come around? Sometimes what's, what's interesting is people come around because they start to see, especially as they're working with stakeholders, where are the gaps that if you approach the problem just with your area of research, important as it is, it's not going to entirely solve the problem. So now that one of our worries, for example, in Maine is um, when we have high precipitation events, we get these storm surges that happen, say, along the coast. And one of the interesting projects, uh, a faculty member in communication and journalism came together with a faculty member in engineering, and they said, we got to figure out how these different locations and towns along the Penobscot are going to be affected by these storm surges. And it turns out that there's so much about the shape of the base of the Penobscot River that makes a difference and why Bangor gets more of a storm surge than places that are closer to the ocean. By coming together, they realized that they could think about this problem in a way that with partners would be the most helpful. But if it was just an engineer or just a communications person, it wouldn't, it wouldn't work. And it's been so exciting. I've been at meetings that they've had, say, for example, in Belfast with the community and to see the different disciplines working together and to see them interacting with the um, stakeholders is amazing. And you can see how for these faculty, it's just transforming their work. You may be powerful and uh, effective in your one field of study, but I mean, it almost is a multiplier effect if, if this works correctly. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. I Just to echo what Linda was saying, this all started, I think probably for Linda and myself, but also for many faculty when we were all talking about what we, what we might do differently, people said, you know, I have all this expertise, but uh, about a lake, for example, and, and the uh, chemical cycles in the lake and what causes algal blooms, um, but the problem's getting worse. And I, even when I do the next best, the next even better study, it's still getting worse. What is missing here? And we realized, well, you can produce a lot of great science, but getting it out into the world requires looking at it from a lot of angles, building these partnerships uh, uh, within campus and with folks off campus. Some of it's a little bit like overcoming cultural barriers, right? When you cross a border into a different country, which we don't do so much these days, um, but hopefully in the future we'll be able to uh, go experience other cultures. Go, an economist talking with a civil engineer it can be like that, or an anthropologist uh, talking with a biogeochemist can be like that, and vice versa. So there is time spent learning each other's language. It's really like that. It doesn't happen overnight. Can you guys uh, talk about the pressure that younger faculty members are under at times to, they have to produce and publish to move ahead in their careers. How do you tell them it's safe to take risks by tackling these more complex problems when they're maybe sometimes not in control and it could even hinder career advancement? That's a great question, and, and um, we've spent a lot of uh, time thinking about that and, and uh, working to understand it. One of the things that's really interesting is to 
not to have the publication be a separate thing, but really recognize that it's central to reaching audiences too, that we, we really do need to publish because the publications are communication. That's when other people say, other coastal um, states, if they learn about the work going on in Maine, then they can say, oh, here's what we're doing that's similar or different. So we really, really encourage a lot of writing on the part of um, the, the faculty. And they're, at first they, they worry, and then they start to see, oh, my chair now understands what I'm doing. Oh, I'm getting invited to give talks about, about things. So that the publication is an important resource for getting the word out with certain uh, groups and audiences. And if I could pick up to Ron, when you, you're absolutely right. There are people who say it can be risky to try to work with people in other fields. It does take longer. Remember the thing about uh, learning another culture, another language, That's, that takes longer initially. Um, we had members of the National Academy of Sciences. This is a story we told in our Rebuilding the Ivory Tower paper. Those members of the National Academy said, you better be careful with your early career faculty. Maybe they just shouldn't do this until they get tenure. But we had a lot of early career faculty who were really interested in this project when we got started. And so we said, first we said, hey, let's, we'll tell you what the National Academy members said. They said, this is risky. Let's talk about those risks. Let's figure out how to manage those risks. So we actually had to spend time educating uh, uh, the faculty themselves, peer committees that review them, their department chairs or directors, um, the deans, the provosts, the vice president for research, and even peer committees elsewhere around the world about all of this to kind of say, this is really important work. It's different. It's not the same old way of doing things, but it's incredibly valuable. And A, I'm really happy to say that even though the National Academy members thought that maybe some faculty wouldn't get tenure, everyone has after 10 years, everybody who's participated or gotten promoted if they were at another stage of their career. So that hasn't happened. And increasingly, we're getting, I got an email from someone from Australia this morning wanting to know what our secret is for making this work. It, it seems like there is a shift happening and some of these old molds are being broken. Is it a, a case that younger researchers are maybe more comfortable with this team approach because they've been raised in it, steeped in it a little bit more? I, I think they are more comfortable and they're looking for campuses that provide this kind of opportunity. I mean, it's really, it's pretty interesting. Maine, you know, you may have uh, heard about Maine now has two national research training grants and that's very unusual for a campus this size. These are National Science Foundation grants and they're built on the idea that disciplines have to work together and that the graduate students that are a part of it are getting trained in this way. And I've had the good fortune of being involved with the two that are on campus and watching the new faculty, just like somebody who studies um, ticks and then mm -hmm. somebody who studies um, conservation and watching them work together and watching the students learn how to do this um, is, uh, there's a comfort level, there's an interest level that has been very exciting to see. And we're you know, now working hard to, to create these cross-disciplinary courses so the students can leave with PhDs ready to do this at other campuses. Where do you see it going? Are people gonna start really leaning into this and 
having many different disciplines working together to solve a problem? We see it in multiple ways. It's obviously spreading across the University of Maine, and there's plenty of people who aren't ever going to do this, and that's fine too. But for the ones that want to be able to do it, uh, I think there are more opportunities than ever before. One way we can see it spreading is we get asked, I mentioned an email from a colleague in Australia. They didn't ask me to uh, fly halfway around the world to go help out, but Linda and I got invited this time last year down to the University of Delaware that had just gotten a much bigger university than ours, had just gotten a $20 million grant to do this kind of work, particularly sustainability work, which for us is right at the intersection between the well-being of people and the well-being of the natural world. And they basically invited us down to train their 100 researchers from four institutions in Delaware to help them kick off a really ambitious thing. And they, they sort of said, there's parts of this we haven't had much experience with. You guys look like you've got this down. Come on down and help us out. And that happened. Uh, Linda's been invited multiple times since then to do things like this. I have too. So, yeah, it is. And it, it's really exciting to see the energy, the passion, the expertise that people are bringing to bear. There's a whole field of team science now that NSF and others talk about, which is a version of this as well. It's one thing for a researcher's uh, paper to be peer-reviewed and be uh, shared among fellow academics, but really the, the holy grail is to have it percolate out from there and, and make a difference. That's the, the ultimate end goal to see cause and effect from the work you do. That's the thing that we're tapping into. We, we, you can't make that happen in somebody, right? But if they have that yearning for their work to matter, then I think we've realized we can help. Uh, the Mitchell Center is kind of a place where we just have, we've had over 100 faculty participate in projects where all of them are getting the hang of this. And so then they're mentoring other faculty, other students, and it's growing. And I, yeah, I've, I've been in the room when, when somebody's research or a team of researchers are talking to stakeholders. I'll give you one example. Linda and I and four other faculty were up in a town in Maine, I won't mention which one, but where they'd had real problems with mill closures and their forest products industry, the future of it was really in doubt. And we were asked to come up and help them think about a way forward. Linda had written an op-ed in the BDN that caused them to realize that maybe some of the stuff a university does could be helpful to them. I, I bet before they saw the op-ed, maybe they weren't as sure of that. So we went up, we had this long conversation. Some of the community members were actually quite concerned and frustrated about the future of their community because lots of difficult things had happened there. By the end of our conversation, which was just the first of many that we've had since, one of the, one of the members of the community that seemed the most concerned, worried, and frustrated walked up to us and said, when we described the approach we've taken elsewhere and what we'd be willing to do with them, said, you you guys are the best of what a public university should be. That had to be, feel pretty good to hear. It, was it fun. did. It's not like we delivered a solution that day, and we never do it on our own, but going in that direction is a really wonderful thing to be involved in. I'm just wondering, sort of the chicken and the egg question, is this a necessity now because problems have become more complex, or is it the other way around and we're just realizing it? What do you think, Linda? I think it's probably it's probably both. Yeah. <laughs> I think we're more aware in academia that our discipline isn't the be-all, end-all, that 
that, um, I mean, one of the projects that I've been involved with is um, working across different campuses, looking at climate change and uh, its, its impact on roads and bridges. And uh, especially roads and bridges that are along um, the oceans. And watching people who are from all these different disciplines come to a stop when they realize their discipline can't solve this, can't, can't make the next step. But if they start to connect with people who, who uh, design the culverts um, and the people who are coming up with these, these great maps of where we can expect high precipitation events and what's happening in low-income communities that are really hit by this, all of a sudden people are saying, this is how we this is how we can still address these important basic problems, but really have our way of addressing them make a difference. And watching people have these aha experiences is mm -hmm. so interesting. Working with stakeholders on these problems from, from their point of view in many ways, is this bottom line going to lead to more effective, better research, sort of a win-win situation, do you think? Yeah, and I, I would just say there are, uh, I've been fortunate to have lots of funding over the, my career from the National Science Foundation. That's not their only goal. Sometimes they're literally just trying to push back the frontiers of knowledge. But the world needs a lot of help from all the different kinds of expertise that exist in the university. And I don't think there's been ever any more important time to step up and try to meet society halfway, which, by the way, involves a lot of listening to society, something that Senator Mitchell um, got quite good at throughout his long career. And we're partly trying to do that, too, to be responsive to the needs of society. Linda, any final thoughts? Just another sort of add to that point. Uh, the National Institute of Health did some work to look at how long it was taking from the time that basic, some of the research was being done to when it actually ended up affecting medical practices. And they found, I believe it was on average, like 17 years it was taking. And so they started thinking, okay, we still need this really good research, but we've got to change the process some. And their, their review panels that, um, you know, they, they have people like me as a, a researcher on it, but they now also have people who are high level practitioners who can think about what are the kinds of barriers that are, that are gonna happen if it goes this way as opposed to that. And it's leading, I think, to really good science and really will eventually lead to much quicker um, impacts um, on the kind of health problems that we're seeing. Well, it's exciting to see uh, what has been accomplished thus far and where this might head. And we thank you both for uh, taking the time to share your thoughts with us. Thanks so much for giving us this opportunity. Thanks, Ron, stay safe. You too. You can check out their article, which appeared in the spring 2020 edition of Issues in Science and Technology, a quarterly journal put out by the National Academies of Sciences, Engineering and Medicine, and Arizona State University. Thanks for checking us out. Please consider subscribing to our podcast series. You can do so on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, Stitcher, and SoundCloud. As always, we welcome your thoughts and feedback. Send us a note at mainquestion at maine.edu. This is Ron Lisnett. We'll catch you next time on The Main Question. <laughs>